Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. A heads up, there's going to be some swearing in this episode. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Myra Flynn, and I'm speaking with our question asker, Anna Costello. She's from out of state, but wants to know more about ours. That happens sometimes. I'm from California and got married last year and road trip this way. Um, so that he- Anna is from California, lives in Massachusetts now, and has visited Vermont exactly once for a long weekend. And driving around, she noticed something. Going through the state, I definitely saw vast majority of white folks, um, maybe 99%. And so it was really fascinating that in almost every little town that we seemed to go through as we were traveling around Vermont, there was a Chinese restaurant. And I didn't really see Asian folks either as I was traveling along, um, just the folks that I met day to day. And yet there were a whole lot of Chinese restaurants. My name is Anna Christina Costello Duran. I live in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And I was wondering, what's the history of Chinese restaurants in Vermont? What are some other common Asian American phenomena? How do Asian Americans experience Vermont? Sometimes some people will sneak three questions into one question. (laughs) And you, Anna, you are those you are those people. (laughs) No, it's okay. I know. I like kept on running out of character space and then (laughs) re-editing my questions. (laughs) We're here for it. We're here for it. Do you identify as Asian American? I don't. I identify as white. Anna is a white person wondering about a specific ethnic group she doesn't belong to in a state that she spent very little time in. She's a drive-by question asker. So I really want to know why Anna wants to know. Like, what is her gaze? You know? It turns out that back in California, Anna lived in places that were predominantly Asian. So when she's asking about the Asian American experience in Vermont, she's actually asking about a cultural demographic she's used to being around. Yeah, I'm familiar like with Asian American friends who have been in California for like, you know, generations and generations and others who are first generation. And that's just such a different experience. Um, and so so yeah, going through Vermont, I, it, yeah, it made me kind of curious. Um, yeah. Anna and I talked about her three questions for a while, and it occurred to me that they aren't three questions. They're actually three stepping stones that got her to her real question. She begins with food and then lands here at people, because sometimes we take food and the cultures behind it for granted. So at about a half hour in, I tell her it's time to decide. What are you really asking? Which one would you choose if you had to? Hmm. I think I might actually lean toward the last question. Welcome to Brave Little State. 
Here on the show, we answer a question, or three, about Vermont that's been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we know our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, what's the Asian and Asian American experience like here in Vermont? In searching for an answer to this question, we're lucky because we get to be a fly on the wall, privy to conversations in the Vermont Asian American community. And this community is here. You just have to know where to look, who to talk to, and yeah, where to eat. We have support from Vermont Public Sustaining Members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. When word got out that Anna's question won our voting round, folks who identify as Asian American reached out instantly with recipes, traditions, and personal stories. They also told me about a couple affinity groups I should look into. I know in Vietnamese, it's like, have you eaten rice today yet? Chinese is the same thing. We're like, sick dofa, mea, means that you eat rice yet? In October, I join a Zoom gathering with some folks who belong to two groups, the Asian Cultural Group of Vermont and the Asian Pacific Islander Desi Americans in Solidarity with Black Peoples, a.k.a. APITA for Black Lives. Rice is like a, a summation of meals. I, I find myself talk to my dad too, like that pick up the phone. I think we treat food has a very functional. I have to cook a fish on New Year's Eve. Not just fish, you have to have the head and tail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The animals can't be in (laughs) missing parts. You have to have the whole animal. The folks on this Zoom are key players in the Asian American community and our Vermont community in general. As a newcomer, I feel very welcomed here. Turns out, that's by design. You don't have to be Asian to join it. We just welcome all people and... This is Chi Wong. She's ethnically Chinese, born in California, and she now lives in Burlington. And so when I moved here, I was basically on all the other food forums and parenting forums asking about Asian culture, Asian food, where to find this, where to find that. And so Chi Wong is also a co-founder of the Asian Cultural Group of Vermont. Also here today are Miyako Ozeki, Hakuin Pham, and Linda Laya Lee. When it comes to Asian heritage, The group is diverse, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Japanese-American. I learned they mostly get together to obsess about food. I'm always talking about food, and I'm always willing to talk about food. (laughs) I can spend hours talking about food. (laughs) Sorry, there's no good XLVs here. XLV is Shaolong Bao. So that's the soup filled dumplings. I'm like, oh. (laughs) You know, I think recognizing that, that like in Chinese cuisine like there was a certain taste that was developed in during the gold rush and because of that chinese were lo- like learned how to do chinese american to the taste of american fortunately there's no secret restaurants it's really whatever is cooking in your kitchen you know i have some co-workers i am in middlebury i work for the college very educated worldly people but you know some of them i was 
somebody said like, oh, well, some of them have never had bubble tea. Some of them have never had Vietnamese bang mai sandwiches. Um, and it's like, you've been missing out on some amazing stuff. Yeah. Everybody should know what hot pot is. I am so excited for hot pot. It's going to be perfect season for that. One of my friends uh, came here, had a baby. Um, you know, postpartum care is very important in Asian women um, culture. We have special soup. So her mother picked up the phone. Somehow she um, picked up a phone book and able to find a Chinese restaurant and start talking Chinese to the owner and start saying that, oh, my daughter is, uh, you know, just gave birth. Can you do this and this? Can you help her? You know, no question asked. They did it. They did a, a special, like, um, herbal soup every night for, like, I don't know, 30 days. I've heard a rumor about Chinese restaurants. In the back of every Chinese restaurant, there's a secret menu. You just have to ask for it. Is this true? <laughs> yep. What? Yeah, Same thing probably. in New York. You go to New York, you go to like, yeah, you go to every other city. We, there's a, is a different menu. There's a different menu available. If you say how the do, right words. How do I, what are the right words? What are the right words? I want to know. <laughs> you walk in, speak Mandarin or Chinese, you got it. It depends. <laughs> or, well, I, my husband and I both really love like regional Chinese food. My husband's um, Quebecois and, and Black American, but we've managed to work it out with our local place in Middlebury sometimes. We like come when they're not busy during rush hour and we say like, oh, is there anything like you're cooking for your family today or anything that you can do in a more like regional style um, with whatever's available in terms of ingredients? And they're like, oh, okay, well, like I've been doing some of this or we just got some pea shoots as a delivery. Do you want some of that? And we're like, yes. So it's not like a set menu. It's just like whatever's going on that they're doing for their family, as opposed to, you know, your standardized American Chinese food. But this group, as fun as it is, wasn't only born out of food and friendship. You may remember in 2021, at the height of COVID, there was a deadly shooting in Atlanta area spas when a white man killed eight people. Six of them were of Asian descent. This is Mieko. There's a lot of us who, are not, who were expressing nervousness, especially during COVID. Um, a lot of us feeling nervous about being attacked because we were seeing it in other cities. But I think People kind of felt like, well, Vermont is very understanding and there, there wouldn't happen. But like, I didn't want to take the chance. One of the things I, I kind of, I still felt nervous um, when people, you know, if you, people looked over you at your, like, over a mask and, and expressing anger or frustration or whatever. One of the first things my mother said to me that her nervousness um, was, um, because of my parents' experience, my grand great grandparents' experience of being in the internment camps is like we were scared of being locked up. I and like given the administration, like during the time of the administration that we were under, it just it's, it's too easy to spot us too as well. And I think it's just I think that that was running through a lot of like some I don't know in my head because I could feel that in my bones of history. I think by having this group, we were able to express 
our concerns and what was going on for us. In a lot of ways, like food was our comfort, but I also certainly think it was a good way for us to express like, what are the challenges? What are our concerns? Especially for our children too. Most people I speak with know most people I should speak with. This is a very connected community. And pretty much everyone mentions this one person. They tell me, you need to talk to Weiwei. How did this begin? Do you want the long version? Weiwei Wong grew up in South Burlington and does identify as Asian American. More specifically, she's Chinese. She went to part of middle school and high school here and says that experience was a lonely one. I never saw myself represented. Uh, In the school, um, on the street, there were maybe a handful of Asian kids um, who went to my school. And I felt very disconnected from this place. And I never really knew why I didn't fit in. Weiwei eventually left for college, and after some years of back and forth between the States and China, she came back to Vermont for grad school and found herself again yearning for a connection to the Asian community. And I remember having a conversation with a friend and being like, listen, there are no Asians here. Like, I need to move to California. And she said, there are Asians everywhere. You just need to look harder. Weiwei said, challenge accepted. I basically stopped every single Asian person that I met, like, on the street and was like, I'm going to be your friend. And I did that for about nine months to a year. And over that time, my entire life changed. By 2019, Weiwei co-founded the Vermont Professionals of Color Network. VTPOC held their first event at the Vermont Comedy Club, and Weiwei says it was a hit. A hundred people of color showed up to that event alone. Just, you know, from the Burlington area, from Chittenden County, some people came from a little bit further. And every like time I turned the corner, someone was saying, you've been here for how long? I can't believe you've been here for that long. I've been here for this long and like we've never met. So it was this instant joy and like sense of community. Weiwei stayed in Vermont. It's just her and her father now. And food is one of the things they share to stay close to their culture and traditions. By the way, that secret menu we talked about earlier, Weiwei is the one who told me about it. You know, there's like the secret menu when you're an Asian person um, <laughs> that, that you know, other people don't get. And um, so that has benefited us, or me, at least, as I was growing up here in Vermont. It's, it's a different relationship between like my father going into a restaurant and talking with the owners and saying, hey, we're connected. And, um, you know, he gets to know them. And then suddenly they're bringing out dishes that they would never make for the normal customer. And as far as Weiwei's Asian American experience goes, it sounds like she's worked to make sure it's a good one. She's embraced parts of her culture that serve her well, a la secret menu, and work to shed those that are no longer useful. At least for me, I'm an immigrant from China, and we're told, keep your head down, don't make noise, don't raise your voice, just get shit done. Um, Just get it done. I did keep my head down, 
and I just wanted to get through it, whatever it was. And once I started lifting my head up and I started connecting with people, I was surprised at how people reacted to it, that they wanted to have that connection. There is that community, but we're not really visible. But actually, as of the last census, the highest growing populations in the state of Vermont is the Black community and the Asian American community. Weiwei gifted me some Vermont sentiments in Mandarin. I don't know how to say this in Chinese. Vermont is a big part of me. Could you pronounce it one more time for me? I'm going to try next. Of course. Uh, so as you said, my first name is Paul. My middle name is my Korean given name, which is pronounced Suk Hyun. And my last name is my family name, Yoon. Hyun. Almost like with an H in front of it a little bit. Hyun. Suk Hyun Yoon. Paul Suk Hyun Yoon. Yoon. Oh, I'll get there by the time this comes out. <laughs> Paul Suk Hyun Yoon is simply Paul Yoon in email. But if you dig a little deeper, like say on the UVM website where he works, you notice this longer middle name with a hyphen, Suk Hyun. So in Korean culture, names are given to a child by somebody uh, typically outside of the family. Here in American culture, you might call them shamans or I guess, you know, astrologers, I guess in some way, you know, there isn't the cleanest of translations. <laughs> and I think that uh, at least according to my mother, there's uh, something along the lines of quote unquote prince that's in it. So, so basically I'm speaking with a prince is what you're trying to say. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. To put it mildly, Anna's question is Paul's jam. He could talk about it forever. My primary job is uh, that of Senior Advisor for Inclusive Excellence at the University of Vermont, uh, specifically within the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. But getting to the heart of Paul's own Asian American experience is a little harder. Personal stories can be a tough get with DEI experts, who typically work to create safe spaces for others to share their stories. But Paul eventually opens up. He tells me he and his wife moved to Burlington in 2013. He had a cool job, and it was close to Boston, where they'd lived before. And it was also pretty idyllic. It was like, for me, kind of dream-like, TV-like experience. Paul's parents are first-generation Korean-American. His wife is white, and her parents are from here. So if you follow the thread from work to family, Vermont made sense, and it suits him. If Paul is moving mountains by way of his work life, he is certainly chillin', Vermont style, in his personal. He reminds me that Asian-American doesn't always look like an exact mix of Asia and America. It's its own thing, with a lot of ups and downs. My son has had both positive and negative experiences. For example, one time in preschool, he brought seaweed, kim, which is the Korean word for seaweed, to school. And, and some people were like, what is that, you know? And he's like, it's, 
Kim, it's seaweed. Like it's like it's normal, whatever. And actually, some of his classmates who are white were like, "Yeah, man, like we get this stuff from Costco. Like it's awesome." And they just start like eating it like you know a potato chip. And so he's had like those types of experiences, like unexpected in some ways, and other experiences where you know definitely people,、um, I think, have kind of told some very、um, <clears throat> not so right positive things, whether it's about like. Food jokes.、Um, he's definitely had people do the squinty eye thing at him. Food, as I'm learning, is both a point of pride and pain in most stories of the Asian American experience. As easily as food can be a gateway to cultural appreciation, it's also a gateway to taunting. Wouldn't it be great if you know those types of things didn't happen? Absolutely.、Um, it's it's why I consider this kind of line of work my life's work. So that hopefully, the sting of those experiences are not as acute、um, or felt as as acutely for both of our children and our family,、um, and that you know other families and other future generations right don't experience life quite that way either.、Um, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us to get you know to the quote unquote promised land. And food in some Asian American homes is a gateway to self preservation. And the preservation of tradition. You know how, like some people, right, really want their "quote unquote" comfort foods when they're sick.、Um, I that's all I crave is、uh, typically Korean food, but like now it's Vietnamese pho <laughs> because we have such、uh, an abundance of fantastic Vietnamese restaurants here in the、uh, Greater Burlington area.、Um, and you know, yeah, I, I really wish I could go. And just get、um, my favorite food is this dish called sundubujige, which is a soft tofu stew,、um, and like just a, a bowl of rice would be all I need to get better. The good news is that there are actually quite a few, at least here in Chittenden County, I would say, really good Asian markets.、Um, And particularly in the Burlington area, lots of other types of markets, from、um, African markets to halal meat markets to other types of things that I know have been really, really important.、Um, you know, one person said like life-giving. You know, places where they can go and get the foods that make them feel part of home here in Vermont. When we come back, a tour in one of South Burlington's Asian markets, my epic fail at making dim sum, and a teacher with a capital T. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Myra Flynn. Today, I'm talking with some generous members of the Asian American community in Vermont, who are willing to share their life stories with me because of a curiosity we received from a Californian-turned-baystater, Anna Costello. She wants to know more about the Asian American experience in Vermont. Hello. What? Doing <laughs> whole thing? Yeah, this is this is my microphone. 
Hello, hello. Good morning. Good morning. So fancy, I like it. Hiroka Nakahira is hard to describe, and I think she likes it that way. I know her. We used to sling rags together at Old Gold, a vintage clothing store in Burlington. If I were to try to describe her, I guess I'd say she's like a walking piece of art. She grew up in Harajuku, Japan, a place that is often described as the street fashion capital of the world. And even today, she shows up dressed in an oversized campaign hat, an 80s jumpsuit, and two giant gold earrings. She's hand-sewn. Will you tell me some of the stuff you buy here? I was just here yesterday. Hiroka is showing me around an Asian market called Always Full in South Burlington. And when we are here, it is in fact full. The shelves are stocked, the freezers are packed, and I can barely see the cashier who's almost hidden behind boxes of fresh taro and red bean buns. What's that? This is bok choy, like the kimchi guy. Do you make kimchi? I don't make kimchi because I'm, Kore- I'm not Korean. I know, I mean, but you can make what it. do you do with this then? This I just eat them. Hiroka is Japanese, but this market is serving Asia writ large, though they are billed as an international market. There's Indian food, frozen bao, stuff to make dumplings, and produce that looks similar to your local co-op, but isn't quite the same. Hiroka is creepy. I never buy it. Look, it's like big. The cauliflower is creepy? What's creepy about it? I don't know. It's not like dance. It's like too loose. Do you buy cauliflower? You know, you I'm more of a bro- I'm more of a broccoli person. Do you go grocery shopping? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> then you will realize it's like so loose. Like I think cauliflower has to be tight. Well, it's called. It's got Hiroka walks me through a few tight aisles with loose vegetables, some of her staples, and shares with me some of her hacks when it comes to things that are hard to find like eel. And there's an eel, which I don't. I love eel, but I don't buy eel from Asian market. I buy it from Maine. You buy it from where? Maine. Maine? There's a company called American Eel. And then they just deliver. They send it like in 48 hours, like frozen. Wow. Like Mind blown. Oh, eel. We stop in an aisle with packaged ramen. I think these are better than like many of ramen store in Barrington. Why? Because they suck. Because <laughs> I think they don't have enough competitive, so they can do whatever they want. You like know, the, the ramen to, restaurants, you mean? Yeah, they don't have to improve it. Or because uh, there's nobody to fight. Well, I feel so like good like, ramen's all about the broth. Yeah, but I heard that if there is, if the restaurant has more than like three flavor, then they are not making soup. Because it's like so much dedication. There's no way that like one restaurant can make more than three. Yeah, because each We walk past pig's feet, buckets of octopus, chips flavored like crab and shrimp, and many containers with pork blood. But in this store, one brand stands out to me for sure. That says Vermont curry. Yeah, these are the number one brand since like 60s or 70s. Why? We have no idea. <laughs> is that in Japan? They, if you, if you ask about Vermont in Japan, like ninety-eight percent of people will say, "Oh, Vermont curry." Because I grew up watching commercial, so it's like since seventies. Did it have like 
the state of Vermont from the U.S. in the commercials, or where are they getting Vermont? I have no. We, I still haven't figured out. I don't want to. I was gonna call them and ask, but then I was like, no. I think I'm gonna try to figure it out. Apple, apple honey, apple honey curry. See, these are all right. Our next stop is the Asiana Noodle Shop. We sit down for some lunch. What did you? Uh, what are you gonna get? I'm gonna get. Oh wait, what's the curry today? Uh, today is the yellow curry. Mm. Is it spicy? Yeah, a little bit, not too much. I want spice. What's your take on Japanese food in Vermont? Well, I only know in Barrington, so I can't barely. I don't barely know in any other like. Bradbury might have something good, but Barrington is not very good. But I wouldn't expect it. Why not? Well, why wouldn't you expect it? Because this is like a population of like what five hundred people town. So I wouldn't be. Surprised. I think you might be a little off on those numbers. <laughs> After we order, I'm able to finally lay Anna's question on Hiroka. And she has some questions of her own. So, am I Asian American though? Well, that's the thing. I don't know. Like, right? I don't know. Does everybody identify as that? Yeah, because I wasn't born here. I'm not like a refugee or anything. In like hard situation. Like immigrant. Yeah, like I didn't have to like give up my own country or anything. You know what I mean? And it's just kind of like, oh, I'll go to school in America, and it's kind of like that. I just feel like I'm not serious. <laughs> but it's you have like a you have like an American imposter syndrome. Well, on paper, I'm not American, so that's that. Haroka is married to an American, which means she's classified as an immediate relative, and has a green card and a Japanese passport. When did you come to Vermont? Like first time. Ninety-six. Why? Because I went to this stupid school. <laughs> Hiroka is talking about Goddard College in Plainfield. Why was what made it stupid? Well, because they they accept me, but they didn't have anything. They didn't have any English class. They know how bad my English skill was because I had test score. They I submit test score, so they didn't have any support. Any support. This test Hiroka is talking about is a thing. It's called an English language proficiency test. It's meant to determine if international students will be able to participate in American college effectively. Hiroka says she had a pretty low test score, but they accepted her anyway. First semester, I only lasted till October, so I had to go home. When Hiroka left school in 1996, she went back to Japan but didn't stay away too long. She returned to Goddard in 1997 and graduated in 2002. During that time, she met her now husband, Chris. They live in Burlington. Being married to a white man, do you feel like a battle of trying to hold on to any of your traditions or sense of self? No, because Chris is like a white man, but it's not like patriotic man or like those like macho truckery driver or like or like Wall Street guys, anything like that. So he speaks Japanese, we speak Japanese in the house, kind of, so no, it's not hard at all. 
That's awesome. He learned Japanese for you? Yeah. Hiroka and Chris visit Japan twice a year to see her family. And as for Vermont and our, quote, 500 people, she's into it. When you think about Vermont food, what do you think about? Vermont food? Ah, I don't know. Right. A bargain? Um, I think, uh, I don't know, I have no idea. Like bargains with like some maple syrup. Oh, chicken waffle maple syrup stuff. That is so southern. Oh, it is? <laughs> <laughs> that is really black, actually. Oh, it is? <laughs> oh, burger. I don't know. Burgers, though, totally. Yeah. Vermont food? Burger? I think there's a lot of, a lot of burgers happening. You said earlier that you kind of had a romantic notion about Vermont. Um, has Vermont lived up to the romance? <laughs> well, romantic, yes. The green mountains, woods, um, loved being outdoors. Incredibly beautiful, yeah. especially during the fall. Um, I probably did romanticize it a little bit. <laughs> Cynthia Reyes is an associate professor in education at the University of Vermont and recently became the associate dean for academic and faculty affairs. She moved here 20 years ago from Chicago. I would identify myself as a second generation uh, Filipino-American. At the time, um, it's interesting, I didn't really understand what was meant by predominantly white institution. I mean, I understood, but I didn't realize that, that the state, around 600,000, was predominantly white. And, um, and so when they offered me the job, I, I just got along with everyone. I just thought this would be a great opportunity to grow. So I yeah. took the job. Cynthia is a teacher with a capital T. And more than anything, she values language. She has a PhD in reading, writing, and literacy, an M.Ed. in educational studies and instructional leadership, and a B.A. in Spanish and communications. In short, words matter. I have a Filipino friend who always identifies as Filipina. What's correct? Ah, okay. Well, um, I have identified, you know, self-identified as Filipina-American. Um, I usually use Filipinex, but that's sometimes that sounds really strange when I use that with my parents. They're like, what is that? And so I try to explain, you know, gender, um, why it's so important to use what, what the X represents, um, especially in a place where we need to be really mindful of non-binary gender and, um, and not think mostly in terms of male or female. And so... So I go by Filipinex, but I think, I think if you spoke to different Asians and Asian Americans, depending on the generation, it pro you probably would get really different answers because, you know, the Asian American diaspora is huge. <laughs> the Asian American diaspora is huge, and I'm glad Cynthia said it. I'm finding that it is also huge in Vermont, huge and connected and busy and strong, but it is quiet. There are no pats on the back for this community. If it uses a hammer to crack open friendship, policy, social justice, and yes, create a booming food scene in their spare time, that hammer is velvet, soft, and felt and persistent. And that work still 
is not devoid of pain. You know, I understood because I saw my parents going through that, uh, what it meant to be an immigrant in the U.S., what, to, what it means to be a child of immigrant parents, what it means to assimilate to a culture where you need to learn English as a second language. Um, and I also experienced a lot of things where I saw people treating my parents in horrible ways, saying horrible things to them. Um, and I grew up experiencing some of that same language and, and some of the ways in which I felt like I didn't belong when people looked at me different or people expected me to not speak English because of the way that I looked. Have you experienced that in Vermont? Well, I, um, it's interesting because I work in a university and so I feel, because I am an academic, I feel like I live in this really... Uh, safe, well, quote, unquote, safe, <laughs> small world. But I have experienced that actually in the university. I mean, I remember the first two years that I worked there. I remember someone who no longer works there who was helping me with my um, computer, someone's IT. And so they were reading something that I wrote and they said, I just thought I would correct you on your grammar. Um, you know, just in case English is not your first language. And I don't, I don't remember what, how else we talked about it. I was shocked. I was just shocked that anyone would even comment on something that I had written, that a stranger would comment on something I had written that wasn't even for his eyes. said something to him and I said why would you say that why would you assume that and I think we did take some action on it and I did uh, I didn't really want to meet with this person but um, eventually I did and he was very apologetic but I'm not really even sure that he thought that what he said was wrong even though it still lives with me today so what do you do with that stuff Racism, that is. Where do you put it? Or, as I sometimes ask myself, where is the lesson? But Cynthia knows, even in moments this ugly, sometimes there isn't a lesson to learn. Sometimes those moments make you make the lesson. Sometimes racism can give you a reason to teach. Those are some of the things that you hear, and then you try to figure out what do you do beyond that? How do you, how do you go back to teaching, and how do you... Um, how do you talk about it in a way where you can heal, but also the people that you're teaching can learn? I mean, I had a teacher who once said, to teach is to choose to be in a challenging world constantly. So I do choose to, to teach. I choose to do that. Is this the flower tea? Yes. What's in it? Yeah. Hey, I don't know his name. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really care about my microphone or my need to physically record him in order to capture his story. He just wants me to eat his food. You don't want the food to be cold. They taste good when they're hot. I'll be back with a couple more bowels, those wow. bowels that we just ate. 
We meet in the kitchen of his restaurant, Cafe Dim Sum, in Burlington, two days before its second opening. Sam opened it once before in October 2021, but he says the then 20-seat eatery went from busy to overwhelmed to out of control. So he shut it down, knocked out the wall next door, and expanded. Cafe Dim Sum now seats 58 people and has an additional 54 hot pots where guests can cook their own shabu-shabu at their table. Sam is trying to teach me how to make dough for shrimp dumplings. I'm failing. You can't roll the dough like that because they're really sticky, they're very fragile. So if you don't know what you're doing, you basically just, every time you wrap it, you throw it out because they will break. We have to move pretty quickly while making these because as we're making them, they're rising. So Sam is teaching me how to do this while letting me interview him, while making about 50 before my eyes. I know the problem for me is that I can't get chef. I will still only be the only chef. But I can get like helps to help me wrap a little bit of dumpling, but I still gotta be the main guy here, so. So you live here now? Oh, I live here, yeah. I, I live in the store now. Yeah. I have to spend about 100 hours a week. Even though we close two days a week, but I'm still doing 100 hours a week here. I'm gonna make you a couple more things to eat. We're gonna get, go in and sit down, okay? I don't want your food to get cold. All right, I'll pick this back up in the dining room. Okay, yeah. In Sam's house, it's Sam's rules. Before this visit, I spoke with Sam on the phone to ask him how he describes his restaurant. He said it's authentic Chinese food, unlike the usual pan-American Chinese food that we are more used to around the state. He says he opened an authentic Chinese restaurant here because there are finally enough Asian people around to appreciate the difference. And about that secret menu, I had to ask. Is that true? Can you confirm? <laughs> so menu is only for business. Cooking, there's no need menu. Uh, if you're an actual chef, just one same piece of meat, I can make 30 dish out of it based on my experience. So. Yes, if the restaurant's not busy, if the chef or owner is very friendly and has the same habit as me where they like to see people smiling and happy when they eat, I will more, you know, I will be more than happy to make something that's off the menu for you to try. Yes, there's such thing. Sam, for what it's worth, is a tough guy. Not just in physicality or the way he pounds dough or the way he forces me to eat instead of interview. He seems to eat each of my questions skeptically and with a welcomed challenge. He's kind of brilliantly intimidating. <clears throat> I'm curious, like, COVID was COVID. COVID was already hard on restaurants, right? Obliterated the industry. But COVID was also really hard on Chinese people in particular. And there was a lot of, like, anti-Asian... Crazy, you know, crazy. There was, a... there was racism. Did you experience... I didn't. Um, I've been around for I've been around in Vermont for quite a while. I know quite a few people around too, and uh, I'm not one of those like guys would take shit from people. Sorry. <laughs> but if you get out of Sam's way, he gets out of his. You can't really just ask him to open up about his experiences, like his food. It takes time. He's in there. I don't look for troubles, but if trouble comes, I will accept any trouble. Just don't come to me. You know, I, I, I don't take advantage of anybody. I don't make fun of anybody. Nobody should do it to me either. But when I was younger, 
When I went to elementary school in New Jersey, yes, even the teacher was racist. Making fun of me with, you know, doing the signs of twinkie eyes, making all that funny Chinese talking, which is, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's my teacher. This is American school, English school. And I can't understand one word you said. What am I gonna learn? So I dropped out of school when I was like 14. I know you can't drop out of school when you're 14, but I did. I can't stand it. I just told my my principal I'm, I'm moving out of the country and going back to my country to go finish all my school. Not just a teacher, but my classmates, also racist. I got beat up all the time. I was the only Asian kid in the school. If you ask my personal experience, yes, there's, there's quite a few racist people around in this country because I've run into uh, quite a bit. But I, I don't make it as a statement. You know, it, it's, it is what it is. I am my outsider, I'm a foreigner. If people think that way, then I'm always that way. There's nothing I can do about it. It's only them that's struggling, not me. If I walk away, I live my happy life. I, I do my food, I do my business, that's my thing. If I think about that all the time, then I'm just gonna be wind up fighting this kind of issue all the time. It's pointless. I want a happy wife, happy life, happy everything, you know? Happy customers. <laughs> happy customers. <laughs> I'm happy, very happy. Me too. Yeah. In all of my interviews for this episode, I outed my confusion as to why no one questioned the gaze of Anna's questions the way I did when I first heard them. Why everyone who responded to her winning question met me in my emails or my intrusive microphone with an eagerness to share and a willingness to tell me about the guts and gore and glory in their lives. Why they let me be privy to their communal space. Why no one seemed fetishized. I think if I'm honest, I've been asking, why aren't you having the black response to these questions? And please, share with me how you do that. Because I think I'm jealous. Haquin Pham, who we heard from earlier, told me off the mic that so often the conversations about race live within the binary of black and white. So if you're not either, you're left out entirely. She says she doesn't mind sharing because, quote, nobody ever asks about us. for listening to the show and thanks to Anna Costello for the great question. If you want to see Hiroka's incredible outfit, the creepy cauliflower, and my attempt at making bow with Sam Lai, head to our Instagram at BraveStateVT or our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own questions about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Special thanks to Maine Nagusky, Marlon Hyde, Ita Menno, and Anna St. Marie. 
I reported this episode and did the mix and sound design with engineering help from Peter Engish, editing and additional production from the rest of the Brave Little State team, Angela Evansy, Josh Crane, and May Nagusky. Our theme music is composed by Ty Gibbons, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. We have support from our station sustaining members. If you like our show, you can join them at bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just find some friends and tell them to listen. I'm Myra Flynn. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.